good morning again, everyone. Again, thank you. Worship team. Worship this morning. Um, one of the many words in the English language that is filled with intense emotion, certainly today, is the word freedom. It is a word that can be applied to almost any area in life, um, from debt to addictions to um, chronic disease, political oppression, uh, racism, and almost an infinite number of injustices that are committed around the world. Freedom is a state that the um, human soul craves and is even revealed by a statement enshrined on the Statue of Liberty that speaks to the huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Still, there is often a grave perception regarding our most urgent need for freedom, a realm that is eternally more significant than any realm in this world. And in our passage today, Jesus addresses this illusion of what true freedom is, and he explains how freedom in this eternally significant realm is one of the primary evidences of true belief and is in the lives of those who believe and follow him. So take your Bible and turn with me, please, to John chapter 8 this morning. John chapter 8, we return to. Today is really part two of our study of verses 31 through 47 that we began last week, where we see Jesus speaking to a group, a group of Jewish leaders in the temple in Jerusalem. This group, many of whom, according to verse 30, had believed in him, but as we discovered last week, the validity of their belief is called into question as Jesus' words to this group had a twofold purpose for those who claimed to believe. Um, he was not only helping this group to seek to understand that true saving faith, true discipleship must reveal itself in their lives, but he was also seeking to expose the deceptiveness of what false belief is, false belief that does not save. And as we've seen throughout John's gospel, in fact, the very purpose of John's gospel is a call to believe. Nearly a hundred times in 21 chapters, we are called to believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God, and that by believing, we will have life in his name. Belief is the starting point of the Christian journey. But in the midst of John's continual call to believe, We've noted that John also consistently differentiates between true and false belief because he knows that there are many who will initially respond positively to the call to believe, only to later reveal that they were never truly disciples of Jesus. John personally experienced this pain of watching people who had once professed faith in Jesus Christ, only to later deny him and even betray him perhaps none more shocking than Judas, one of the twelve whom John himself had spent nearly three and a half years with in the presence of Jesus. Judas then becomes the prototype, the prototypical false disciple, someone who appears to be following Jesus only to later reveal he never was one. Rather, he is called in John 6, the devil, the devil. 
when John then wrote these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he was writing with a a keen uh, personal understanding of the significance of recognizing the very real danger of false belief. And I think it's taught in us by the words of Jesus Christ himself. We spent a bulk of our time last week uh, just in one verse in this section, in verse 31, where Jesus gives a single condition that demonstrates the truthfulness of our claim to believe. Today we're going to continue on in verses 32 through 47, where we'll discover two key differences between true and false belief. Two evidences, really, of true belief. And then we'll see how these didn't match up in the lives of these people who claimed to believe. So let's look at that together. I'll read for us beginning in verse 31, and then we can study it a little bit closer. John 8, 31. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word or continue in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are not doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the word of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. As we looked at last week, the single condition that demonstrates the truthfulness of our, our claim to believe is spoken by Jesus there in the middle of verse 31. If, if 
you abide in my word. The validity of our belief is improved by then an emotional experience, um, a church that we attend, a prayer that we may pray, the good works that you do, or even a positive view on who Jesus Christ is. Throughout John's gospel, we've seen that Jesus isn't interested in just gathering large groups of people to himself who are focused on what they can get out of him or will only follow him when it's convenient for them. He is seeking those who will deny themselves and devote their entire lives to following him as true disciples and is revealed by whether or not we abide in his word. A sure test then proves true saving belief, the one thing that separates true saving faith from false deceptive faith is ultimately whether or not you um, is whether or not you persevere in the faith because when we persevere it means that we continue we continue on that path of faith even in the face of uh, persistent persecution or even overwhelming seeming discouragement so the main truth that we spent our time on last week was this one statement of truth that we broke apart into two parts True disciples persevere in the faith by continuing in the word because God preserves them. True disciples will persevere in the faith. And we saw this teaching last week throughout the scriptures as it only comes by continuing and abiding then in God's word. The father draws you. John 6.44, the Son keeps you, John 6.37, the Holy Spirit seals you and is the guarantee of your inheritance, Ephesians 1.13-14. God preserves us in our salvation. There is nothing that we can do on our own strength and on our own power to preserve our own faith or to persevere in that faith. It is God who does it for us. Just as there is nothing that you can do to save yourself, there is nothing that you can do to keep yourself. Which is why we said last week that word abide in verse 31 is so pivotal because it carries with it that that idea of interconnected dependence. The branch and the vine, John 15. We continue, we abide We remain in the word and the powerful word of God and keeps us in the faith. In other words, we strive and we labor to continue to keep ourselves in the faith as if our life depends on it. But all the while, we know it does not depend on us. It is the power of God who keeps us. And this is where we ended on there in verse 31. As we continue in these verses, however, it not only establishes perseverance in the faith, but it also has authenticating power in our lives as it authenticates that we are, in fact, who we claim to be as followers of Christ, which is where we now turn our attention to in verses 32 through 47. In these verses, Jesus gives us these two things that authenticate or give evidence to a persevering faith. And then exposes how this group who claimed to believe in Jesus did not evidence either of these things in their life. So we'll look at both evidences in verse 32 
and then in verses 33 through 47, we'll look at the examples of how these Jews who claim to believe showed no signs or evidence of faith in their lives. The first evidence there is in the beginning of verse 32, as Jesus said, and you will know the truth. You will know the truth. So evidence number one, true disciples know the truth. True disciples know the truth. The most important question that we must then ask at this point is a question later in John 18, verse 38, by cynical Pilate when he asked Jesus, what is truth? What is truth? I think it's fairly obvious. We live in a world right now that has no way of defining what truth is. The world cannot define it often because it has no basis for its definition. When the world is left to itself, what may be true for you uh, is not true for me. Um, well, I have my own truth. Or so the world says. Now, there have been a number of polls over the last few years that have shown that only around one-third of adults in the United States view truth as absolute. And if you're wondering, yes, those numbers are dropping each year. I saw numbers as low as 22% in, 20, in 2018. But consider this. This means that there is only around one-third of adults that believe there is a standard of truth that does not change. One-third. And what's even more shocking than that is professing born-again Christians didn't fare much better in these polls. Perhaps one of the best illustrations of our cultural understanding of truth or lack thereof comes from the timeless Peanuts cartoon that depicts this view in a conversation between Linus and Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown was confused and delusioned by his failing belief system when Linus confronted him with these words. It doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. That, friends, is the battle cry of our world. Today, the culture says it doesn't matter if you believe that the sky is green and the grass is blue as long as you're sincere about it. The truth here in verse 32 that Jesus is referring to is not relative truth, nor is it ambiguous, nor is it changing. The truth primarily refers to Jesus Christ himself. And from the beginning to the end of this gospel, John is repeatedly showing us that Jesus is the personification of truth. In chapter 1, Jesus is presented, presented as the unchanging unchanging, always true, all-powerful, incarnate Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him, nothing was made that was made. Then in verse 14, he adds, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then, as we'll see when we come to John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus himself said, I am the way, 
and the truth and the life. And then John 17, 17, Jesus in the middle of that glorious prayer to his father said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The truth of Jesus as revealed by the word of God then can only be received through and taught by someone else who is referred to as the truth. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. John refers to the Holy Spirit at least on three occasions as the spirit of truth. As when Jesus said in John 16, 12, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. That's of the Godhead, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Those who have truly believed in Jesus are given the Holy Spirit who then guides us in the truth of God's word and enables us to understand these spiritually discernible words so that we might marvel at the radiance of the glory of God that is revealed in its most fullest sense in the face of Jesus Christ, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. It is the Father, Son, and Spirit all working in perfect harmony of truth. Those who do not believe in Jesus, however, do not have the spirit of truth and therefore cannot understand the truth of his word, as we will soon see here in the text. Paul instructed Timothy that in the last days there will come times of great difficulty as people would be lovers of self and lovers of money and they'd be proud, arrogant, slanderous and without self-control and they would not love what is good? They would always be learning, yet never able to arrive at a knowledge of what truly matters. The truth. The truth. In 2 Peter chapter 2, he warned of the rise of false prophets and false teachers who would secretly enter the church, bringing in destructive heresy. Therefore, he urges his readers again and again that they would do well in chapter 1 verse 19 to pay close attention to Scripture, for it is our lamp shining in a dark world. We hold on to the very word of God as truth, as it testifies to itself, as it prophetically has relayed the future truths and promises of God, and we then have confidence. Or as Peter said, we have the prophetic word confirmed. Because he knew that the word of God is more complete more reliable and more authoritative than any human experience or any human source of perceived truth. The reason being, Scripture is the very Word of God, which means it's infinitely more valid and trustworthy than any human source. The Apostle Paul told young Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, this truth, that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
This is why continuing in the word, abiding in the word is so pivotal to lasting perseverance in the faith because the word is truth. The first evidence of true belief of being a true disciple of Christ is that you know the truth because you're abiding in the word. Remember what a a disciple is. A a disciple is a a learner. A a disciple is someone who's being taught. And if you are truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, then you'll be continually learning about him and growing in him through his word so we can know and love him all the more. So we can walk in greater obedience to him, evidencing the transition, the transformation that has taken place within us. When you continue in the words of Christ, that means that no matter where the Bible begins to grate against our culture or against your own personal preferences, that you stick with the truth of the word. But when you question the truth of Scripture and begin to only accept the parts of the Bible that fit with what you like, then it reveals you've placed self and are serving self over him. The compromise comes in all forms and has diluted the church of Christ. It doesn't matter whether the compromise is in the realm of God's definition of marriage as a lifetime covenant bond between one man or one woman, or if it's the roles of men in the homes and in the church, or if it's hell or grace or salvation. To be a true disciple of Jesus Christ means submitting to the words of Christ. It is the very confession of a servant crying out for a new master and confessing Jesus to be what? Lord. Lord. Because Jesus is the incarnate word and he is the truth. True disciples then have an unbreakable commitment to God through his word because God's word is the standard of truth that disables and disarms all deceptions and lies of the enemy in our lives. It is a continual abiding in the word that leads us to increasing knowledge of truths to God and propels us forward in our walk. Because as you read through the Old and the New Testaments and you grow in the knowledge of who God is and you see his faithfulness and his steadfastness of God's enduring love for his people, you will learn to trust him all the more. It is through the knowledge of Christ that most beautifully and excellently in his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection, that we know God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. True disciples know the truth. But sadly, the apostle Paul warned Timothy again, shortly after the proclamation of Scripture being sufficient and breathed out by God, he warned Timothy that a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and instead will wander off into myths. Brothers and sisters, this is only continuing. It has only progressed over the last 2,000 years since this was written. All you have to do is just take a look at the popular so-called Christian books they have on the reading list today and you will see for yourself Churches have accommodated so much of the world into the truth that you can't tell the difference between the church and the world anymore. And once these, as Peter says, antichrists have infiltrated the church, the first thing they did was to trample all over God's holy and perfect words of truth. Some sects of this will call themselves 
progressives. The only thing I can tell progressives means is they no longer affirm the truth of God's word. It's so watered down, there remains no longer any truth in it. It reminds me, sadly, of what our Lord said to the church in Laodicea as he looked in his church. He said, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Christian churches and uh, or Christians and churches most need today is not more people, it's not more money, it's not bigger buildings or, or worldly power. We need the truth. We need to feed and to disciple the flock who Jesus has brought together. In fact, the only reason you should be here today is because you love the truth. Because you know his word will be proclaimed. That's it. Yes, we love fellowship, of course, and there's great encouragement in getting together and all that, but it's the word of God, as we saw in last week's Psalm 1, that is more desirable than gold or honey. The Christian life and the church are always impoverished when the great truth of Scripture gets neglected because the truth leads to the second evidence of true belief, Look with me there in John chapter 8, verse 32. Jesus said, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Oh, what glorious news, brother and sister. The truth will set you free. The second evidence of true belief is that true disciples find freedom in the truth. True disciples will find freedom in the truth. The truth. All through the Old Testament, we see God establishing this pattern of delivering his people out of bondage before granting them blessings. Just before God made the covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15 and promised them the land and the descendants and the blessing, he said to Abraham, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 2, the Lord used similar wording then with the Israelites before taking them into the promised land after bringing them out of Egypt. He said, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. The same pattern of God graciously redeeming his people from slavery in Exodus is then continued all through the Old Testament and the continued deliverance of God's people as they fell into sin again and again and again. And it's meant to pattern and to point us to God's ultimate redemption that is given to us in the New Testament beginning in Jesus' ministry shortly after his baptism. Luke chapter 4 tells us that Jesus went to his hometown in Nazareth and there in Nazareth, he stepped into the synagogue on the Sabbath and he picked up the scroll of the prophet Hosea and he read this as recorded for us beginning in verse 18. He said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor. And then he rolled up 
the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And Jesus said to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. God the Father sent God the Son, empowered by God the Holy Spirit. So he would live a perfect life, free of bondage of sin, in order to set the captives of sin free. In Ephesians chapter 1, the apostle Paul takes this language of being set free or, or being delivered from slavery. And he talks about the price of redemption to be freed from bondage. Paul says in verse 7, in him, Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Building upon that imagery in Exodus in the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul shows us that we are all born slaves to sin. Yet Jesus crushed our enemy and has delivered us, redeemed us from that slave market of sin with the price of his own blood. Praise be to God. The problem is most people don't see the need to be set free because they don't believe that they're captive. Look at John chapter 8, verse 33. As we return to the story, they, these are the Jews who had believed, they answered Jesus saying, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Now, it's highly unlikely that this group of Jews were attempting to overlook the fact that for most of their nation's history, they had been enslaved to a nation, whether it was Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, or the current Roman occupation. Rather, it seems that the Jews rightly understood that Jesus was talking about spiritual freedom here and not physical freedom. And they immediately appeal, however, to their identity as descendants of Abraham as an attempt to prove their spiritual freedom. The Apostle Paul points to the significance in understanding that the Israel had when he writes in Romans 9, 4. And this is true, speaking of the Jews. He said to them belong the adoption, uh, the glory, uh, the covenant, uh, the giving of the law, the, the worship and the promises. As God's chosen people of the Old Testament, they had been given all those things. All of them. Yep. You were the keepers of the law. Yep. You had the prophets. Uh, you had all those great patriarchs. Uh, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David. Yes. Yep. Uh, so the Jews here in John 8, uh, they knew that all of those things belonged to them because they were descendants of Abraham. Which, yes, that's true. Jesus agreed. Your nation, the Jewish people, had had the front row to see all that God has done. All that God has done. You, you've got the oracles, the scriptures of God. But the problem is, none of that helps you with your sin problem. You see, they believed they had a birthright. That physical lineage guaranteed them freedom from spiritual bondage. But they completely overlooked the truth that was given to them all the way back in Genesis 15, verse 6. When we read, and he, Abraham, believed the Lord, and God counted it to him as righteousness. That foundational truth has been quoted three times in our New Testament. 
Romans 4, Galatians 3, James 2, and all use the example of Abraham being counted righteous through faith. And that is key in unlocking both the Old and New Testament, but they didn't have that key. They didn't believe it. The only solution to our slavery to sin is received through faith in Christ, which means freedom from sin does not come through trying to do good works or to live a good life, and it's certainly not through physical lineage. It is those of faith, as Galatians 3, verse 7 says, is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. These Jews Jesus was speaking to didn't even realize that they were still in bondage. And the Lord's reply to their assertion was simple, yet devastating. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, this is that um, amen and amen. In other words, listen up. This is of the utmost importance. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin or who commits sin, the, the point is present tense, is a slave to sin. Everyone, Jew, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Everyone who continues to consistently, habitually practice sin reveals that they are still enslaved to sin and have likely not been freed by the Son. Why? Let's look at verse 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, John in his first epistle provides us some helpful insight and some commentary on what this statement does and does not mean. 1 John 3, verses 8 through 9, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Now again, as I mentioned last week, this does not mean that Christians don't continue to sin throughout our lives. In fact, earlier in John's um, exact same letter, 1 John 1, he says, If we claim we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay? <laughs> what it does mean is that the fruit of your life will ultimately reveal who it is that you're serving. And eventually, brothers and sisters, we will find victory over that addiction of sin by the power of the Spirit of God working in you through the truth of His Word. We are to pursue holiness because we have not been freed from bondage in order to go on living enslaved to sin. We don't live for our kingdom, but now we live for the kingdom of God and we pursue obedience to God, not the desires of our own sinful flesh. When Jesus redeems us from slavery to sin, we are set free from the bondage of evil. So that Paul can say in Romans 6 verse, 6, verse 17, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves to sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Notice how Paul uses the past tense, you who were once slaves of sin. Redemption came. The chains fell off, for they were no longer slaves. They were free. 
Redemption doesn't occur by following a set of rules or practicing a series of religious rituals then. For no human effort can accomplish redemption. We needed a redeemer. We needed a savior. And God provided his world with just that through his son and his precious blood. Perhaps even now God is revealing to you that there is an area in your life where you continue to walk in slavery to sin. Scripture gives us two points of guidance in this regard that I'll share. The first one is from um, John himself, 1 John again, 1, 9, uh, which is written to believers uh, who fall to the temptation of sin. And this is what he tells us, that if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that an incredible promise that God gives us? His mercy is immeasurable. Immeasurable. Then quickly let me share with you Romans chapter 10 verse 9. Now this is written for those who don't believe in Jesus. So if you're under the sound of my voice here or online and you don't believe in Jesus, I want you to take a moment, humble yourself right now and ask God to please open your hearts to this. Paul wrote, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God's raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you have not believed in Jesus, believe in him today. C confess that you're a sinner. Christians are no better. We just recognize that we've sinned and we need a Savior. We need His grace. Confess Jesus as Lord over you. Ask Him to give you that new life and a, and a new heart that is free from the slavery of sin and free from the coming and righteous judgment of God. And God will graciously, no strings attached, will give you freedom from sin. Because if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, these Jews here in chapter 8, they just didn't get it. They did not understand. And, and we now see this further evidence in their dialogue with Jesus as Jesus continued his response to the Jews in verse 37. He tells them, I know that you're offspring of Abraham. Jesus knew that. He understood that. But Jesus says, there's something wrong here. Yet you seek to kill me. Right? Because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I've seen with my father. So, yeah, again, I'm from my father, from above. Therefore, you also do the things which you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Okay, so this is obviously a big issue to them. Jesus is going to shift them away from thinking Abraham is their father to thinking somebody else is their father. But he doesn't go there yet. Okay, you're Abraham's children. That is spiritually useless. It's true, yes, we saw, Paul says in Romans 9, you, you have the law, you have the prophets, you've got the oracles of God, uh, the covenants, the adoptions, the son, you have all the privileges of being Jewish. You are people who descended from Abraham, but it doesn't do anything because no man can be justified by the deeds of the law. <laughs> so, so your descent from Abraham, spiritually thinking, means nothing. Now to us, saying that, we're like, yeah, that's absolutely right. But for these guys, this was shocking and beyond offensive. You're not true sons of Abraham? 
Why? Back to verse 37. Because you seek to kill me, and my word has no place in you. Why is that important? Well, there's actually two things that are really important right here. Verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, but but you have no interest in what comes from my father. Uh, you, you do what you have heard from your father. They answered, Abraham is our father. Okay? Uh, Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. Now, what are the works of Abraham? Jump down to verse 56 real fast. Verse 56. John chapter 8, verse 56. Jesus said, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. In the very Abrahamic covenant itself was the promise of the seed, right? Galatians 3 says that. Abraham was looking forward to the one true sacrifice that was symbolized in the ram that was caught in the thicket and replaced uh, Isaac's substitutionary sacrificial atonement. Abraham was looking ahead to the day when the final and full and acceptable sacrifice would come. He was looking for that day. According to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, the hall of faith there, Abraham, a hero of faith, he died in faith, Abraham, without having received the promises. He didn't get to see it to the completion. But having seen then and welcomed them from a distance. Huh. What's that mean? Abraham received them. You reject them. You're not spiritual sons of Abraham. Physical sons of Abraham, yes, that's true. Spiritual sons, no. First, because Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced. Abraham, look ahead to my day, you reject me. I, I think there's even more here than that. Do you remember back in Genesis chapter 18? Uh, Abraham, Sarah, they're at home one evening and then the, the couple angels show up. One of those angels turned out to be God. Go look at Genesis 18. This is God in the physical sense, sometimes called a Christophany. This is the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And what did Abraham do when the pre-incarnate Christ appeared before him? He received him. He embraced him. They had dinner together. They had fellowship together. Read Genesis 18. Abraham actually received the Lord into his house when God himself so, you're not Abraham's spiritual children. Uh, you've seen the, the fullness of God. He's standing right here in front of you. Abraham only saw a very limited version, a shadow of it. Furthermore, Abraham believed what God said. What did God say? Well, you're going to have a child. Abraham believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. When God spoke, Abraham believed. Jesus is saying, I speak, I speak the words of God. You're not like Abraham. Uh, you don't welcome the messenger that comes from heaven. You don't believe me. So he says in verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, then you would be doing the works Abraham did. You'd be receiving me. But now instead you seek to kill me, a man who has told the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. It's not what Abraham 
Abraham, excuse me, verse 41, Jesus says, you are doing the works your father did. And Jesus will tell them in a moment exactly who that is. But they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. So infuriated by Jesus' continued insistence that they were not children of Abraham, these Jews lashed out with this vicious insult. They said, we are not born of sexual immorality. Now, I told you a couple weeks ago, I think this is very likely a reference to the controversy surrounding Jesus' birth. In other words, I think they were implying um, that his birth was illegitimate. They're saying, uh, well, at least we know who our father is. Where's your father? And then they pull out their trump card at this point with the God-man Jesus standing right in front of them. They said, we have one father, even God. So now they, they, okay, now they're moving to the God card. Oh, how blind they were. Verse 42, Jesus' response to their crowd boast, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. One true spiritual identity is revealed by our likeness to Christ as sons and daughters of God. Galatians 4, 7 tells us that you are no longer a slave, Christian, but a son. You're a child of God. And if a son, then an heir through God. Because we have been set free. And, and now we must live as sons and daughters of God. We should treat people as God treated us. Meaning, yes, we should give generously to others who are in need. We, we care for the weak and the, the vulnerable and the needy. We forgive others as God has forgiven us. And we must also put off that old manner of self and, and pursue holiness as we seek to live in obedience to the perfect Son of God who lived in obedience to His Father. Remember, true disciples find freedom in the truth. Find freedom in the truth. And these Jews are revealing they had not found freedom because they did not know the truth. If they had known the truth, they would have loved God. They would have believed in God, but instead they want to sin. Verse 43 Jesus continues, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. This is the sinner's problem. He is unable, unwilling to hear the words of God in truth. And though the Son of Man was standing right there in front of them, they do not understand. They cannot hear. But why couldn't these spiritual leaders discern that this was their long-awaited Messiah? In verse 44, Jesus tells us, because they are not children of God. Jesus continues, You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Without the freedom that comes through saving faith in Jesus Christ, the only thing that the sinner can do is serve Satan. Your will is to do your father's desires. Well, why? That sounds kind of a harsh thing to say. Because you're still a slave to sin. This is why in the middle of verse 44, Jesus calls Satan a murderer. Because that's ultimately where sin ends. We all die. Sin has infected us and we will all die someday. Now remember, 
at least some of these Jews were said to have believed back in verse 30. So now look at verse 45. Jesus said, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe. Their false belief is now fully exposed. And it it flows through the rejection of the truth. Remember the first evidence. True disciples will know the truth. When you reject the truth, you cannot understand the truth, nor desire the truth. And when the word of God is rejected, the truth is then lost. Jesus gives us these two evidences of true belief. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The Jews heard this bit about freedom. They got so hung up on it, talking about Abraham and their descendants. So Jesus worked his way backward with them. He said, you are not free because you do not know the truth. You do not know the truth. That's why you are not free. We combat the lies of the world with the only standard of truth, which is the word of God, so that we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Or as Paul said in Colossians 3.16, that we ought to let the words of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. To follow Christ isn't about a list of do's and don'ts. It's about abiding in the word of Christ, which is continually forming the character of Christ in us by the power of his spirit so we can love like him, serve like him, and speak like him. John 8 provides us with God's promise. If you abide in my truth, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I want to close today by asking you, do you know the truth? Do you know the truth? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ask God into your heart. Jesus can break every chain and sets the captives free. That's his specialty. That's our Lord's specialty. If you need prayers this morning, we'll some men and women up front here who will pray with you. Worship team, I think you guys got one more song to lead us in. Uh, thank God for amazing grace. Our chains are gone.